0: This is the Horse Radio Network.
1: This is episode 215 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Hands On Gloves, the all-in-one, revolutionary, bathing, grooming gloves. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. And today we have a woman named Noble and a royal tribute. This is Debbie Laux, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the first and the fifteenth of the month. This is the fifteenth, and I have
2: my producer Jen with me today. Hi, Jen. Greetings, Debbie. I missed you last month because I was busily trotting around the yeah. uh, American Southwest. I'm so
1: yeah, I was it was fun to kind of follow you along. It was great shows and loved hearing what you guys were doing sorry about the tin can you were traveling no it sounded pretty nice actually <laughs>
2: it, it is hot it's it hot was very it was very hot and lucky for us all of the functions of our living quarters horse trailer functioned just as they were designed to so it was really quite a lovely trip
1: really nice I'm glad you're back I really and as much as you you have good babysitters for me it's nice to have your voice back on here too Jen thank you
2: I um, miss it when I don't get to do your show.
1: Well, I'll, you you teach me so much, too, in between. Sometimes it's the notes people don't know. You're typing me little notes in between.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, getting, of teaching things,
1: mm-hmm.
2: interesting show today. Yeah. Um, a little bit sad, but also very interesting. And for many folks, this is going to be a, a lot to learn. Hmm. We spoke with Bree Noble, who a lot of folks may be familiar with during the... Floyd demonstration. She came out and rode her horse down the down the road in the city and and did a middle a, of San Francisco, in the middle of San Francisco, and really raised quite a, a positive fuss. And yeah. you in a get really good way you, in a really mm-hmm. good way, and you got to sit down and chat with her about one of her many business adventures with yeah. horses and helping inner city youth and other things. What an articulate lady! <laughs> Really, I could learn a
1: ton from
2: her. Very interesting, and our
1: listeners certainly will, I think, too. But I I think this this actually warrants a visit to this wonderful place she has just north of us here, a few hours, uh, because she's done some pretty revolutionary things. But I love her energy too. She's just she's going to continue to do beautiful things because her methodologies match her vision, and I really love where she's going. So people will be interested to see that and probably want to learn more about what she's doing next with her websites and
2: absolutely and ways absolutely and on a, a kind of a sadder note with yep. with uh, the passing of queen elizabeth today the day we are recording this show um your family is quite familiar with the queen you you guys know her she she has been the patron for the Monty Roberts organization for many a year. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested because I'm sure there are many, many things I don't know about the queen Mm -hmm. and many things I don't know about her efforts to improve the lot of horses Mm -hmm. and humans in the universe. So I'm very, I'm Mm -hmm. very interested to hear your tribute to the queen. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be able to do it. And we're going to do that after we hear a little bit about hands on gloves.
0: Hi. I'm Monty Roberts, and am I excited to bring you the news of a revolutionary new all-in-one shedding, bathing, grooming tool, hands-on gloves. They are fantastic, and you believe me, I've tried them all. Hands-on outperforms traditional curry combs, shedding blades, metal bristles, and all those things. Most animals will gravitate to you for more grooming and petting time. If you wear them, your animals will love you more for it. While using the hands-on gloves, you can easily handle water hoses, shampoo bottles, lead ropes, leashes, and anything you want with them on your hands. They are easy to clean and they massage muscles and stimulate circulation while helping to distribute natural oils for a healthy skin and coat. Hands-On is changing the way we bathe, de-shed, and groom our animals forever. Hands-On gloves. They are fantastic.
1: Well, it's quite a day in our household. Uh, We woke up, you know, it being the west coast of the United States. We woke up with some reports that the family were gathering around Queen Elizabeth, and that made us a n- little nervous around our household. Uh, Dad did a quick video about he was getting prepared to work with a big old 17-two-hand horse named Wolf, who um, is a bit of a handful. He's only three at this point, <laughs> so he'll grow. And he is he's one of those challenges that I think at 87 years old, Dad would probably never Have continued to work with a horse like that at his advanced age uh, if he wasn't inspired to work with horses by uh, the Queen Elizabeth. Um, She is for us the inspiration that has shaped this family for 30 years. And here's why (laughs) I think if mom and dad back in the 80s had listened to their own hearts. They would have gone fishing. <laughs> they would have probably folded shop because the thoroughbred industry was struggling as a, as a business because um, no fault of of Ronald Reagan's world, really. But he was president at the time, and he found that there was a lot of funny little tax evasion things going on. People owned llamas and all kinds of crazy animals, and they were they were to avoid taxes. One thing that got thrown in with that were the racehorses, which was kind of interesting because he felt um, or maybe those powers that be around him felt um, because, you know, he owned horses, too, that it was an unfair advantage to take taxes uh, for entertainment and things like that. in the thoroughbred industry, it really hit the industry where my parents were hard because those at the racetrack level were okay, but the trainers in the peripheral, were about two hours north of Santa Anita racetrack and just a few hours south of Bay Meadows and some of the San Francisco tracks. Um, there were a lot of racetracks in California back then. Hence, there are very few racetracks in California right now. So the riding was sort of on the wall at that point that the thoroughbred industry was really going to retract. And uh, so, mom and dad were kind of preparing. They'd been they'd spent maybe twenty years at that point topping the sale. By the way, in his specialty, which was choosing very young horses um, that were ready for training and then uh, starting them, not breaking them, by the way, starting them to their first saddle and bridle and rider, and then preparing them to finally do what their vocation is, which was race. And topping the sales and creating amazing records with the horses that they started was epicenter in the world. Dad was, and Mom, they, they went to the sales together to choose these horses. They had to choose them to be affordable, first of all, because they had very little money then. And they also had to choose them to be confirmationally sound. They had to choose them to be behaviorally sound. Uh, in other words, they wanted to run. They were eager to work. And so that's a lot of combinations, which creates a, a difficult recipe. And if you ever see their record that they that they did for 18, 20 years, it, it's pretty incredible. I don't know that those records will ever be broken. So why do I say all that? Just to brag on my parents? Nope. It's to say that... It was a good time to retire, possibly, you know, go out. The, the sales pavilion closed at Hollywood Park. The lady who owned it decided to sell out. Uh, it was, you know, in a kind of a funny place in L.A. by LAX, a funny place to have a racetrack, a very expensive piece of real estate. So no one can blame her, but it pretty much closed shop on what they did. But there was a small circle of trainers, the best in the world, the Charles Winninghams, the, I could go on, Bobby Frankels, amazing, let's call it arena of trainers that knew what mom and dad had achieved and they all respected them greatly. There was a Farrell Jones, a a trainer who decided he he should put on an open house to let people see what dad did. Uh, To start those horses and it was unique and he knew it but very few people did we have a solid wall Sided round pin and dad had never Shown since he was a kid because he was beat up for it by his dad Had really shown what he did to start horses. It was very peaceful. It was very it actually went it flowed very quickly uh, compared to traditional breaking and the riders who worked for Dad knew, and the trainers who were in the barn knew, but very few people knew exactly. We didn't have a, a round pin wall that anybody could stand up and watch on. We had a ladder for the the rider to climb over the wall in case he needed to get out. But that was about it, and it was on the outside, so he'd have to hike it up. So it was pretty secret, I guess. Um, and and then what Dad decided to do was to appease Feral Jones, but. He did with an admonishment, a warning that people were going to say negative things about his techniques because it's weird compared to traditional. Now, you and I might go. You listeners know a lot about this at this point. But remember, this is 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, today we don't look at it as weird at all. No. <laughs> in fact, round pens were a little weird back then, to tell you the truth. Um, round pens have been around for a, a, a long time. But not everybody used round pens. And it was pretty much a novelty even in the 90s, guys. So it was it was something to learn about. Anyway, so it's, uh, you know, it's 88, 89. And, and dad lost half of his clients the next year after having this open house. So what hurt the most, I think is that these were the top trainers. These are the top horsemen out there. They knew what dad's record was and they knew how to train horses and even they rejected that. So when the queen sent an emissary, the queen called and sent an emissary here, Sir John Miller, uh, Well into his 80s, dad likes to say now, and looked right out of central casting. It's a great story how he came to be here. Sir John, not Sir John Bowles, but John Bowles from the South was a friend of Sir John Miller's. And John Bowles uh, happened to live in the valley and knew dad. So when uh, Sir John Miller called John Bowles and said, the queen has sent me on this trek to find a Monty Roberts in the United States, John Bowles said, Oh, my gosh, he lives right here in the valley. (laughs) And so that was a weird set of circumstances. But he shows up, uh, this Sir John Miller, the Queen's head equerry. He says, I would like to see how you start these horses. And dad appeased him. He did one after another, after another, after another. And Sir John kept saying, do another, do another. (laughs) And he wanted to be very sure that this California cowboy it uh, was legit that there wasn't any funny business going on. So go get
2: one out of the field. Yeah, that make that kind of makes sense from his point of view. The, I mean, American racing started in in Great Britain. I, I can yeah. see how they would say, "Well, wait a minute we we basically invented this sport. How could this be better?" I can see why he would be yeah. a little bit suspicious. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. I
1: imagine he didn't actually want it to work maybe i mean that means if it works well he's soon to find out they're gonna have to change some training systems over in the uk to suit a california cowboy goodness sakes that sounds ridiculous doesn't it so he sir john miller says i'm going back to the queen i will report everything i have seen he was a man of integrity an honest man and a good horseman he does go back to the queen remember she had read When this open house happened, she had read from two different reporters, one in California and one in Florida. She had read what went on that day. And the reporters were honest and told exactly what happened. They didn't go away. They had good content to write about. And the queen is well read, a horsewoman through and through. If you don't know that already, I should have said she had started her life with horses at a young young age her father encouraged that she loved horses she was a horsewoman through and through and i think honestly she loved horses more than the than you know serving the monarchy but that's a bold statement on my part because we know how far down to the ground she was a monarch through and through but when you see genuine smiles on her often horses were in the photo there is another man named terry pindry Who, if you look, if you can zoom out on any photos of her riding uh, recently in the last 30 years, he's with her. And uh, that's because he was chosen by dad to be her companion when riding and to keep her safe and to train her horses and to be sure that all the equipment is correct and everything that a very pedantic Englishman would do to keep a monarch safe. That was Terry Pendry, embodied that. Terry Pendry personally told me, he said, the queen won't let me retire. And I've had a few health scares, but if the queen says, keep going, I keep going. But if the queen quits, I quit. He said. <laughs> <laughs> Queen's not a quitter. He's not a quitter. And neither was he. And so, um, yeah, if you Google Terry Pendry, that person was placed by dad. Out of tradition, by the way, it's a great story, too. He was not the one named to be there and the queen was not going to go up against tradition with that, but ultimately didn't have a choice because the other man washed out. So there's a lot of strings between dad and the queen. And um, I think the most important thing, and I'll kind of close with this tribute to the inspiration that she provided, was that nobody on earth had affirmed this man. But the Queen of England, (laughs) (laughs) which is a pretty cool thing. But what would have happened if she had not recognized good horsemanship? What would have happened if she wasn't a great horse person first? Uh, There's so much that I think back on that. And maybe not all listeners know how far back dad influences this horsemanship that we take for granted so much these days where you do not have to use violence in the training of horses. It isn't necessary. And people still don't draw a line in the sand about that. And they need to. There's still those people who will say, well, if you get this far and the horse won't quite go on the trailer, you can still resort to a quick whack on the butt. So upside down, Jen. <laughs> it's why would you want the horse to think backwards? Why would you want to erase adrenaline? Why would you want the horse to think that you're a predator back there? I mean, it's going to make the horse go not forward. Yeah. <laughs> you might scare him into the trailer. You might
2: scare him into the trailer. And it you made such an excellent point there. Were it not for that moment where she said, Yes, take this out. I got your back. Yeah. It'd be a yeah. different place.
1: So many horses have been influenced in a positive way, and it, it, thirty years ago, 1989, when she invited him over, April. Um, if anything had gone wrong in that first demonstration, <laughs> it would be bad, right? I mean, It would have gone differently. It, it would have gone very, very differently if we'd really had a rogue horse in there for the first one. But it happened to be the Queen Mum's horse. And, uh, and it went very well, obviously. Uh, but I think the recognition that she put him in her, her own armored car at the point and my mom and my brother and sent him all over the United States, I'm sorry, all over the United Kingdom first and said, go forth and multiply and told her trainers, you jolly well, will stay and pay attention. And Terry Pendry was her best student, uh, there uh, if it if that had not gone on, I th- you know, I still see trainers who I respect and love, uh, but still do resort to a few things that dad just doesn't have to do. And that's just because, dang it, he has been at this for. Well, let's say he started at four. So he's 87. Eh, he's got 83. Years. He's got a lot of muscle memory on us, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and remember, because his dad was so violent, he rejected violence from the get-go so that means that he really has been trying to think of a different way than violence or pain or force ever since yeah and until we all do that we either have to one prove it to ourselves because of that that the queen was absolutely spot on or we just have to go learn it all ourselves and do it the hard way (laughs) you know there's other (laughs) people's mistakes or our mistakes and and you know something if
2: If you want to, if you wanted to, like you say, do it the hard way and learn it for yourself, do go and learn it for yourself. Don't make the mistake of poo pooing something Mm -hmm. that you don't really understand yet, because it does take a little time to understand the whole concept. On the surface, it sounds straightforward—you don't use violence—but there is a lot going along, and you really do have to shift your point of view. And I am—it's so interesting that a woman of her era, of her generation. Recognize that immediately, yeah. and like you said, she was a horse girl through and through, through and through and through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and
1: interesting to a caveat that I haven't added here too is that in 2011, she gave Dad an MVO. M as in Mary, V as in Victor. O. I can never say that really well, so that people understand it. So it's the member of the victorian order and it was for his service to the royal family but i will tell you that it was the year after 2010 which is the year we established our Horsons and healing program i really think that she her mind was blown when she saw how dad transferred These concepts that she adored so much and promoted so well. She became the patron of Join Up International, our nonprofit, which is mission statement is to take violence out of the training of horses and people. And when she recognized, when she was recognized as patron, she, we have a letter hanging on our wall saying how much she admired that, but then saw the transference to people. She, figured out an award to give to dad. And that inspired other certificates like the one that went to Jamie Jennings. Listeners will know from Horses in the Morning has received one because she promulgated the same things and became a certified instructor. So again, she wasn't just about patting dad on the head for doing a good job with horses. She was about encouraging the concepts to be grown into a generational thing. This isn't good enough just to learn how to do a join up and to get the trust of your horse. This is about, I would say it's not about teaching people so they can shake their finger at those that might still be violent and harsh with their horses. It's more about demonstrating with their own horses that this works better. I love it when people ask, why is your horse so calm? Why do you not have to use a a lunge line whip? You know, why do you not have to use traditional ways? Why is your horse responding so well? I used to know that horse, that horse never acted like that. What up? I love that question. I love that opportunity for all our certified instructors, all our students who have used the concepts, because that means we have demonstrated what the queen saw And promulgated and encouraged and supported and wants to go generationally into the future. So if we don't take it and go generationally, we have allowed something to slip through our fingers. That is a huge opportunity for animals. Also, people, because the therapeutic qualities, people who listen to this show and people who are starting to understand the concepts know that those therapeutic qualities of a flight animal are unique and where else do we have domesticated flight animals in our lives? Very few, very few. And we all love to use that as an excuse to have another horse. But <laughs> but it but it is a reasoning to to keep horses in our lives, and I think that will happen because
0: of Queen Elizabeth II. Leave this world a better place, Hi, I'm Monty Roberts. And I'm coming to you now to talk about the Monty Roberts Online University. You know, there ought to be six months in everybody's life where they just live with their animals. I've been staying home. But three months now, I've been home with this virus thing. And the things I'm learning, we're bringing you a new series. What Horses See, How Horses See, and About Horses Seeing Things. The Online University is bringing you the last three years of my learning process, which I promise you is the learningest years I ever spent. The Monty Roberts Online University, uh, you won't miss a minute of it if you get started on it. I love bringing it to you, and it's my shot to take my concepts to the next generation. The
1: magic in the language of Bree Noble was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area's East Bay. At age 15, she got her first horse in an, an abused off-the-track thoroughbred Midnight Affair. She has since dedicated her life to rehabilitating abused horses into bomb-proof mounts, quote unquote, and finding them loving homes with responsible owners. Today, we want to talk to Brie about what she's doing with a new concept called fodder. Well, welcome, Brie Noble. I am so excited to have you on, all 27 years of you, I believe. You're a young lady, but you've done a lot in your life, and I'm really excited to talk to you about a couple of different reasons to be on this phone. Before that, it was horses, and then after that, it was feeding horses. So uh, tell us a little bit about your horsey self. Oh, gosh. I mean, I think my horsey self is just like every other
3: bat poop crazy horsewoman that there is out there. (laughs) There's not really much else to us other than that we love horses and doing the things that come with horses. And we really like being next to horses and around horses and everything that that comes with it. You know, it has to have a horse in the sentence. Oh, I um, love
1: that. Okay. It's in the DNA is what you're saying. saying.
0: Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much.
1: Yeah, but you you didn't start riding at like, twos and threes and stuff. You got your first horse at fifteen. Did you have a horse life before that?
3: Yeah. So I actually started writing because of my big sister. So uh, my parents didn't have money to pay for lessons and, um, or pay for childcare during the summertime. So I became my older sister, who's almost 10 years older than me, um, her responsibility. So she was working in the barn for lessons, which meant I was working in the barn for lessons as well too. So I was not quite happy about that, you know, little six-year-old Brianna, but, um, you know, when I got to see her jumping and all the other, you know, pony club kids doing that, I'm like, ah, that is like the coolest thing ever. I want to do that too. So even though I didn't get my first horse until I was 15, I actually have been riding since I was about five or six years old. Wow. Great.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a horsey girl. I appreciate that. (laughs) But one of the things I read uh, about you is that you believe that true horse is a language that transits transcends all the disciplines and that equestrians can reach their true potential by putting the horse's needs first. I mean, that could be our mission statement. I love that it's your mission statement. Tell me tell me how you get questions around that one and, and flesh that out for me a little bit.
3: You know, I just really got, got to start thinking that people make horses so complicated, <laughs> you know, it's just always like, oh my God, well, my horse has this. So maybe I should give him this or, oh my God, like my horse is stocked up and I should, you know, bandage him and I can do this. And it's just like all of these problems that people would come and talk to me about and how I would deal with them and wondering why my horses and my herd that I would keep, I wouldn't really face any of those issues. You know, I'm like, I didn't have horses colicking and didn't have to deal with stocking up and didn't deal with ulcers and all of these different things that become, very common um, for not just people that are in the performance industry, but for just people that have horses as a whole, especially, Um, you know, we see a lot more of it for us that are located near, more near um, urban areas, you know, because our horses are confined more. And so, um, you know, honestly, I'd get tired of running my mouth (laughs) and explaining stuff to people. So when I really thought about how to condense, all of that information for people and make it really basic, it really just boils down to think about what the horse needs before anything else. And it just becomes so much more simple. And so that's how I got to my three Fs. Friendship, fodder, and freedom Mm -hmm. are at the base core of what every single horse, I don't care what discipline, where you're at, what they need to be happy, not pressing our human emotions or desires or anything on them. All horses are social herd animals. They like to have friends. They like to be able to move their bodies freely and they want to have free access to food and grazing and fodder, whatever sort of whatever you're feeding, you know, that when they're masticating, they're happy. And that became a very easy base way for me to just start out the conversation of treating your horse the way it needs to be treated. And you'd be surprised how many issues go away or don't ever exist
1: boy, you said a mouthful and I want to stand up and cheer and clap and tap my feet. It's really cool. So what does it look like to say we are moving closer to the city or we have places closer to the city so that becomes more difficult? Why is that? Is it just smaller containers that we're putting them in or what's the deal? Well,
3: our as we get closer to the cities, it seems like our facility, facilities get smaller and the prices get larger.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: what that means is our all of our facilities that are generally closer to the city. I mean, everything is between rent, you know, board, all of that is so expensive. I mean, in our area, just um if you find pasture board, which is really, really hard, pasture board alone is like five hundred dollars with no shelter in our area. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at a stall, a base rate on a stall is going for about eight or nine hundred dollars. Yeah. And those are twelve by twelve little stalls. Most people cannot afford, you know, like the double box stalls with the With the paddock and everything like that, plus you're paying for turnout, plus all of these different things, you know. Um, And the closer we are to the cities, the smaller those get. I mean, you're looking at facilities in our area that may only be a couple acres large and have near 100 horses Uh, on it, you know. Um, So it's just, it is what it is. People are making the best of.
1: of What do you do? Yeah. How do you make the best of? What do you do? How do you overcome and get enough movement in horses and keeping fodder? So we're going to get to that fodder question I'm dying to ask you, Mm -hmm. too but yeah how do you keep those three f's going well
3: you know for me it's just I had to put the horse's needs first is I mean I understand everybody the love of horses is just like whatever you need to do to keep a horse you do it I mean I've been in the same place as well where I'm at a you know, crap facility and my horse is in a 12 by 12 stall. And I mean, that was the best that I could do. But I realized as I started a business, I realized as I moved forward that like, I was no longer willing to compromise my horse's care and happiness for something that I love to do. Mm -hmm. And when I made that shift of just saying that like my horse is first, then so many issues that I had went away because yes, it's about my happiness, but it has to be about the horse first before I can be happy. So that meant for me a lot of times, like being, um, before we found our ranch here that I am at now, being at a facility that was toxic, that really sucked. It was really hard for me to, to run my business there. The owner was awful, but I dealt with it because it was the only facility that had 90 acres of pasture. So wow. it literally went for me where, um, you know, the horses didn't have shelter. I'm paying 500 bucks a month per horse. You know, I got an entire herd and I literally got a shipping container and me and my husband spent two months in the middle of the, win- the winter, basically building ourselves a barn out of shipping containers. And so that our horses had some place to come in and I had someplace you know to tack up and be away from people and I went as far as that to make sure that my horses had that freedom Mm -hmm. and and fodder and friendship aspect of it that nobody else at the facility had at first you know people were really annoyed by having us around and then they started to look at what we were doing and they're like oh wow that's really nice her horses are really happy we want that too
1: (laughs) that's cool so is this urban cowgirl ranch that you founded in 2017 Yeah.
3: So Urban Cowgirl Ranch, um, this is the work that I do at Urban Cowgirl Ranch is actually something that I've been doing far longer than it's had a a name to it, you know, but um, yeah, I've been running Urban Cowgirl Ranch. um, I was running it out of a boarding facility for a little bit, but we actually have our own ranch here that we've been on for probably a year and a half now. And it's been an amazing, um, absolutely amazing experience to have our own place.
1: Yeah, and, and so do you still use containers, the shipping containers, or what are you building? No, no, thank goodness. So we're on a 40 acre facility in Castro
3: Valley. Um, so we serve mostly our inner city communities like in Oakland, you know, so we're about 10 minutes away from those places. But we actually have 40 acres on our horses run on probably about 80 acres of um, space back behind our ridgelines, And we have uh, three barns and a covered arena and, you know, huge paddocks and everything like that. So it's, it's great because our horses at nighttime, they run on them, like I said, about 80 acres. And then every single day they, they know that it's breakfast time at about seven thirty in the morning, they all file down the hill and they're waiting at the gate and we just open our gate. And they go all separate off into their their paddocks, you know. So we have different groups depending on who gets what supplements, you know, or what they what they eat. And so everybody just knows where they go. So our job basically consists of just closing the gate and throwing, you know, whatever scoop of feed they're getting and their hat and fodder. And and then at nighttime, once we're done with whatever we're doing for the day, we just open every single gate and they get to go running off and
1: be horses all night. That's awesome. I love that. I can't wait to see that. Um I'm going to come up and visit you and see what all you are doing you up there too, oh, yeah. No kidding because there are very few examples that we can find these days, especially out here on the West Coast, too, that I'm aware of, anyway, and I'd love to hear about more if you know of them. But um, so you've got horseback riding going on out there. You've got, motivational, therapeutic stuff going on, disadvantaged youth you're working with. You are a busy girl. Now tell me about the fodder though, because I love the way you're talking about feeding horses fresh fodder in an area. Well, everybody knows California is in a drought, first of all. So it's really mm-hmm. hard to get green pasture, as you'd mentioned. Um, tell me what what created this fodder idea. I know fodder's been around, the, you know sort of those growing things have been around a long time, but I've never heard anybody really successfully doing it of late, but it sounds like a really cool business idea. Tell me,
3: yeah. well, this really all sparked for me um trying to figure out how to not put the cart in front of the horse. Mm-hmm. So with my my with my riding program and everything that we had here, I mean, it's just so unsustainable, especially once I received all of this attention. You know, I went from basically running maybe 20 kids at a time, you know, um, in a horsemanship sort of program that was directed towards inner city youth uh, to having wait lists of over a thousand people long. You know, like there's absolutely no, no way that after we're on the Today Show and in the New York Times and on Vogue and all of these different places that the attention you received there's no way you could grow a lesson program to yeah. the size necessary to impact even a small fraction of uh, those people. I you know? wish. I wish. Uh, yeah. there's, and nor do I have any desire to have like a 300 horse program like that. No. <laughs> no. All of that, no. Yeah, but when I just think about how I could make this sustainable, I had to first think about. When I moved to this property, when I had the chance to expand, I said, what hardships can I face? What can cause me to go bankrupt? What can stop me from reaching the goals that I want to reach? And the number one thing that could do that for me was hay. Because being in an inner city environment, I mean, it's not even like other ranches. You know, they're really close to the fields and the growers, you know, so it's very easy to get hay. They've got large facilities in terms of storage for the hay. But for me, I have to pay a a huge shipping cost to get my hay shipped in. We have limited facilities to be able to store it. You know, our facilities are older. So, like, if you try to stock up, you run the risk of having that hay damaged and, Mm -hmm. you know, rained or whatever over that amount of time. Um, And then with the drought and everything in California, the hay prices, you can go from, I remember hay used to be like, $13 a bale. Uh, I've seen hay go all the way up to $45 for a three strand bale. And so for even us, you know, I paid maybe $28 for this, this grass that I have, um, on the property right now. And the bales are only like 60 pounds. So you have a huge, you know, that huge gap of being like, well, you, one month you can spend $3,000 on hay and the next you're spending 10, you know, that's, um, crazy to think about, you know, and horses always need hay. So then I said, well, what could I do about that? Because we're getting into a scary place where with the drought, I've seen it years ago, the last drought we had where I was working for a barn where we couldn't find hay. It didn't matter if you had the money to pay for it. I spent half of my day working there calling, 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 trying to find enough hay to feed the 80 horses on that facility. So I had thought about it. I'd been at a, um, I'd seen it at a cutting barn before, like, probably 15 years ago. And this guy had this like operation that was growing in a shipping container. And I just remember seeing grass and I was like, what what is this? Like, <laughs> you're going to founder everybody. You're going to like, <laughs> what? like, it just didn't seem like a good idea. And I didn't even think anything of it, but like that just popped in my head. I didn't never learned about it. Didn't know anything. And then I thought about it and I was like, I wonder if you could like grow your own feed. Like, I mean, I I don't have water here. I can't grow it in a field, but I wonder what that stuff was. So I started to look up, fodder. And all the information that I had coming up was for cows, you know, because yeah. it is a huge industry in the, the cattle industry. Yeah. And then I've seen limited examples of horses, but there's all of these examples and studies that have gone around that, you know, um, of the benefits that fodder would have. So I saw a lot of people, you know, people were just kind of like growing it in their shower and stuff like that. There was only one company in the United States that actually um, manufactured these shipping containers where you could grow it. They went out of business. I could oh. never get in contact with someone. So um my partner Adolfo Gutierrez, he is actually in construction, you know, and he is God. I mean, he is amazing when it comes to building anything. He can build a car from the ground up, house from the ground up, all of that stuff. And so I just told him, I said, Hey, look at this, you know, like this is the information I've seen. This is the problem that I've seen. And he goes, I can do that. Oh. So okay. I basically saved up money. And then when I got enough money, I said, "Here, build this for me." And in a span of a month, he basically went from concept um, design to an actual unit. So we built this in a there is an old chicken coop that was left behind on the property. So it's 16 by 19 square foot building. You know, there was nothing in it. You know, it had never really been used. So we insulated it, and he just had. A good old dandy time. As nerd as I am with horses, that's how he is with building. <laughs> so he built this system and we basically went in and said, wow, well, what were all the problems or what are the things, reasons why people stop growing fodder? So when you look at like anybody that's talked about it, they had huge problems with mold, huge problems with, you know, um, uh, getting good water and- Coming in. So what we did is we just were like, oh well, those are all easy fixes because basically everybody else has broken down all the issues that they've had. So we just kind of ensured that um, safeguarded different ways to not have that happen. And here we are with with the fodder. So uh, we have a way to insulate us from the drought. Make sure that our horses have consistent feed, good quality feed. 365 days of the year. And then once we did it for us, we realized, like, I just put out a couple of videos of like, this is what I do. And people are like, oh, my God, gimme, 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 <laughs> because it's just, um we have so many different classes, of horse on the property. It also makes our life easy because, I mean, we go from 17-hand warm blood to draft horses to donkeys to minis to our old laminitic founder fodder, 28-year-old
1: farts you know, and I can feed <laughs> this water to everybody. <laughs> yeah, you can't. So, so now you actually can actually supply it to other people. So tell me, tell, you know, tell people, I know you're in the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's somebody from mm-hmm. New York is probably not going to be serviced by you. But tell people in your area how they get a hold of you or how they can get into your program.
3: Yeah, so you can just shoot us an email online. We're actually working um, right now to to deal with a, a larger distribution network. But um, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us and order fodder in the San Francisco Bay Area, you can just shoot us an email. Um, we can provide you with all the specs and everything like that. And we do make deliveries Um, once a day, early in the morning, you'll have water every single morning right there for your horse at your barn. Um, So it's a really cool thing because I say, if you can't bring your horse to pasture, why not just bring the (laughs) pasture straight to your horse, right?
1: I can't fix the world,
3: but... No, but you figured
1: it out. That's pretty good. That's Mm -hmm. pretty good. And and what's the email that they should send to?
3: Um, You can send this to Brianna Noble at urbancowgirlranch.com. And then um, we also offer systems for people as well too. So for people that are interested in just growing the fodder themselves, we have the ability to actually build a custom fodder. Building or fodder room for anybody that's interested. So you can think about expanding your hay barn or you can just take one stall on your facility and in a, you know a twelve by twelve stall, you can grow almost up to I'd say about thirty horses, feed about thirty horses out of something like that. So you know I'm all for just we want to make horses more mainstream. So what we're trying to do here is bring back the, all the romantics of the old West with the social relevance of the present here. Oh, so, you know, going to get yeah. with the times.
1: I love that. Cause that's going to keep horses in our lives for a long, long yes. time. If people recognize those uh, qualities of horses, I like to say yes. that uh, make us feel good inside. And you have a nonprofit as well. You're helping these inner city. Youth? Yes. Yes, exactly. That? Let us know where we can help. Exactly. With that. What's called a fiscally
3: sponsored project so um i am not my own 501c3 although i am i operate almost as one so what fiscally sponsored means is we are a for profit business but we do a majority of nonprofit work so on any given month we basically operate at about an 80% nonprofit basis and probably 20% um, for-profit because we believe in being you know by our community for our community. So we are all able to offer tax deductible um, donations. I mean, tax, yes, we have yeah. offered tax deductible donations if anybody loves the work that we do and wants to support it. But the reason why I didn't become a full 501c3, you know, because many people ask me that question is simply because I've, I've worked with so many different equine nonprofits and you see them go underwater very quickly. Yeah. Because if people do not donate, how do you feed your horses? Yeah, you well, got to be consistent for, there. Mm-hmm. So for me, fodder is a great example of how we can be self-sustaining with what we do. It's great that people love our cause. And if you want a tax write-off and dump your your company's money into us at the end of the year, we really do highly appreciate it. <laughs> but guess what? If you don't believe in our cause, then we're going to work. Our community yeah. is going to work to ensure that we have this ranch around for our, our communities for generations in the future, you know? Honestly, I really hope that our fodder can grow to help impact other programs like ours and also impact the quality of life for our the horses in our community as well, too. Uh,
1: thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing all of that inspiration because there are a lot of people out there trying to figure out what you just said, and it's really good. I love growing business, growing fodder, and oh, also the fact that um, – you said sustainability. It's not just fodder is sustainable way to feed your horses hay, but if there's one thing that people look for to support, it's something sustainable. So if people are really listening hard here, you're absolutely right. I love that for-profits can do good things by, yep. if, you can, if you can contribute to something that will write a grant and or just sponsor somebody who is doing the right thing and you, Bree Noble, are doing the right thing.
0: Where in the world is Monty
1: Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. We've got an introductory course of horsemanship starting September 26th through October 8th. We all also have module one, which is the first steps to Monty's methods, October 26th to 28. We also have an introductory course module two, which is join up September 29th to October one. And then we have in October, we have, we keep going with an introductory course module three, that's long lining, October three through five. And we have Preparation for Intro Exams, the fourth module, October 6th through 8th. Then get in here quick because October 12th is Monty's Horsemanship 101. And that one fills really fast. It's a one day and it's really fun. And then we have a mountain trail play day, October 15th. That's when anybody Mm -hmm. in our area can come and play on the mountain trail. And we get a few tips from our instructors that are out there. And it is open to the public just one day a month. And then just for your information, we have October 21 through 23, we have a horse sense and healing for our veterans and first responders and their families. And then October 31 through November 11, we have advanced exams. Now you know who you are if you've gone through all your processes to get to the advanced exams, but that's by invitation only. I'll throw out some long-termers. November 12th, we have the Mountain Trail Play Day as well, so that's once a month, and December 17, we'll have our
2: last one of 2022. Woohoo! And you can find all of that and more at MontyRoberts.com, and you can also find the phone number there, and if you just happen to be near your phone and want to make a phone call right now, the phone number is 805-688-6288, and for details about today's show, you can go to HorsemanshipRadio.com or MontyRoberts.com because the podcast is right there on the homepage. And for this week's show, you're going to find information about today's guest pictures and links. We love your feedback. Great way to do that is by social media. On Facebook, Monty Roberts, the one with the little blue check mark, and on Twitter, as well as Instagram, Monty underscore Roberts. Yep, and many thanks to our sponsors as well. That's Hands On Gloves. We all
1: love them, don't we, Jen? We do. You and I use them, yeah. And uh, and MontyRobertsUniversity dot That's where all our lessons are. It's a great it's it's a great value, and it's a great university. Be sure to visit all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network at HorseRadioNetwork dot Until next time, have many happy horse hours.